Thanks for pressing play. This is Christopher Lockhead, Follow Your Different. And on this episode, a guy who is a true legend in Silicon Valley, none other than Randy Komazar. And um, this conversation is a super special opportunity to go deep with a master sensei on how to have a legendary career. And in his case, how to have a legendary career in Silicon Valley. What it takes to build category dominating businesses uh, Randy's unique view and philosophy on life. He's uh, he's kind of a philosopher king in Silicon Valley. You see, Randy uh, um, is known for a bunch of things. Most recently, he was a partner at one of the pioneering, uh, what you might call OGs in Silicon Valley uh, venture capital, Kleiner Perkins, Caulfield, and Byers. Uh, over his career, he has worked closely with many legends like John Doerr, um, the leader of Kleiner Perkins, uh, Steve Jobs, and George Lucas. You see, he was a senior counsel for Apple. He was the CEO of LucasArts. And um, he is also known in Silicon Valley as being one of the first, quote-unquote, virtual CEOs. And, and that's a, a role of coming in and being a temporary CEO when a company need one, needs one, and or being a coach to a CEO. And he served in that role for companies like Web TV and Global Giving. Randy's also the author of a bunch of uh, best-selling books and books that are, um, you know, really held in super high regard in Silicon Valley. Books like The Monk and the Riddle. Uh, I remember distinctly reading that book um, and, and being blown away by it. Uh, Straight Talk for Startups, Getting to Plan B, and you got to love this title, I Fucking Love That Company. That's the name of one of Randy's books. <laughs> Now, this is an extremely rare opportunity to go deep with a true legend who really doesn't appear that much in public and certainly not for a sit-down conversation like this. Again, it's another example of the power of a true dialogue podcast to pop the hood with an amazing guy who's had an incredible career and have him share his life and his insights with, with you. Um, and uh, he's a pretty low-profile guy for such for being so successful. He doesn't have a website, and he has no social media presence whatsoever. You're going to love him. I, I promise you're going to love Randy Komazar. Now, we're sponsored by my friends at Oracle NetSuite. They want to help you turbocharge the growth of your business. Go to netsuite.com slash different. Check out netsuite.com slash different. And my friends at Crash want to help you crash your career. They have a new handbook out on how to design a legendary career. I wrote the foreword to this handbook, and it's written by my buddy, Isaac Morehouse. Check out crash.co slash different. That's crash.co slash different. And um, you can also go to lockhead.com to check out the show notes and learn more about Randy's incredible career. Now, hey-ho, let's go. I find being direct either brings out the best in somebody or it sends them out the door. Yeah. And so, and I'm looking for the best. So I'm, I have no qualms about being direct in a kind way. Does it, does it now or has it ever sort of got you in, in any trouble? <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, there I, are people who despise me, I think for, yeah. for that, those interactions. And, um, and I'm sorry for that because I don't like being, disliked but on the other hand it's probably a pretty bad mismatch of people yeah 
Yeah, it's interesting because I think a lot of people uh, go out of their way to be liked. And look, I'm not stupid. We all want to be liked. Nobody, I, I don't think, very few of us actually want to be disliked. Maybe some do, but I think in general, most of us want people to like us. Um, and so I think that drives a set of behavior that is a little ortho- orthogonal from your behavior. I think that's right. I, I, I think there's a difference between being disliked and liked. There's a middle ground there. I, I don't like being disliked. I don't particularly um, try to be liked. Right? Yeah. I try to be valued. Um, I try to um, create something constructive or positive f- um, in the relationship. But being liked is not, I, it doesn't cross my mind. Yeah. Right. I want to be respected, you know, and if I'm really lucky, I'm admired. Um, and for a few people, I'll have a relationship where liking me matters. I, I saw an interesting quote from um, uh, Buffett, I think yesterday, uh, I think he's just turned 80. Jimmy Buffett? Yeah, Jimmy Buffett, exactly. <laughs> Jimmy Buffett's uh, older brother, Warren. Yeah. Uh-huh. I mean, look, I think Warren's cool and everything, <laughs> but, but I'm way more into Jimmy with all due respect to yeah, Warren. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, we put him on when I was, a, when I worked with a bunch of rock promoters in Providence, I think it was 70 six or 77. It was, it had to be the most lively. I mean, everybody comes with their, you know, their, their Florida wear on and their Jimmy Buffett costumes. Yeah. And then they just rock. I mean, it's an yeah. interesting group. Yeah. Fins to the left and fins to the right. <laughs> exactly. All of it. All of it. I love all of it. I would go to that. I would go to that show once a month for the rest of my life. You could do the exact same fucking set list. Yeah. A Jimmy Buffett concert is a great time. <laughs> And I've only been to a couple. I wouldn't call myself a, uh, well, they're parrot heads, right? Yeah, parrot heads. I think that's what they call themselves. Yeah, yeah. I'm not a legit parrot head, <laughs> but I do think the man is the man. Yeah, it was a heck of a show, as I remember. It was a long time ago, but. Yeah. And, we, and so you lived all these lives, Randy. Uh, yeah. You I know, mean, you, were in, you ran George Lucas's fucking company. Well, Randy, yeah, the, the the digital side of it, yeah. I, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like I mean, George Lucas, that George Lucas. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, not yeah. Jorge Lucas, <laughs> or Felipe, or Christopher <laughs> Lucas, or John Lucas. Not them. It may have been Jorge who actually hired me, but but yeah, it was. Uh, yeah, I mean, I've I've had a. I mean, I think there was a time when my resume in this in the eighties look like a series of two year stints. And I will tell you in the eighties, that wasn't what most employers were looking for. Today you look at it and everybody's got, you know, an intern here, two years there, a week and a half here. Um, but in those days I did a lot of different things and largely, you know, the way I navigated that was if a unique opportunity was put in front of me that resonated with my values with a person that I found worth investing my time in, I just took that fork in the road and I kept taking forks always based upon a set of principles about what I wanted the other side. So it wasn't blind. I wasn't just simply going through every open door. I shined a light through it first, but open doors intrigue me. Well, and the interesting thing back then, I think to your point, a lot of people would have called that a, uh, a flaw or a liability or, or something, a negative in one way or another. Oh, you know, you keep changing jobs. Right. And I was very similar. 
Um, today, of course, it's the norm. But the more interesting thing is you were the you were early on, if I'm not mistaken, in in doing what I would call a niche down, a mm. personal category design, when you declared yourself to be, am I using the right term, virtual CEO? Yeah, I was declared that, by the way, by by um, Steve Perlman, who um, was the fa- one oh, of the well, founders who was of, he? of WebTV. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, not important. If well, somebody important had said it, maybe you should have <laughs> run with it. But he used the term and it stuck because what I was doing was so difficult to explain. I, I, I wasn't an employee. Isn't that interesting? I hate to interrupt you, but sure. I'm going to. So in this case, um, the category named the new category. That's true. That's true. That's true. And I think it right. Was, if your category is serving right, CEOs sure. and entrepreneurs, right. he's a big one. It. Right. And he told you what you were. He he did. So it says you outsourced your category design <laughs> to a customer. Well, you can see where it came from because Steve was the CEO, and people go to him and say, "What's Commissar doing here? Is he the CEO?" And I wasn't. Um, my job was to try to make the idea work, uh, create success from the and idea. And just break down the idea. Well, the idea there was to bring the internet to the television set. This was in the early 90s. At AOL. Yeah, he did it. No, he did it before. So he basically, Steve Perlman, with, um, with a team of really great people, uh, he... He basically went around and um, came from Apple to, I think after Apple, oh, I'm trying to remember, but ultimately ended up doing a, a game startup that failed and then came to me and showed me the web TV thing. And I was blown oh. away. I was blown away to see, he'd gone to Fry's, spent, I think his- What year is this, web TV? I think he built this in 94, maybe, 93. Wow. 90, right in that time frame. And Netscape goes public in 94, right? 95? Was it 95 or 96? But it was right around then. And then, of course, it just... That, but my point is, he's thinking about web TV before the web's before really... Before there's a browser. I mean, the, you know, the company that essentially makes the web go. I don't exactly. give a fuck what anyone says. It was Netscape, yeah. right? And and my memory at the time, you tell me how you remember it, was when when Netscape went public, like... It was like the business equivalent of the lunar landing oh, to me, yeah. right? It was like, holy shit, this is on. This this thing is way, I understood what the crazy, like there was all the people going, oh, why is it, why is it so overvalued? And there was that whole, and they're not profitable. There was that whole discussion that we've heard a million times since then, right? Everybody who ta- has taken that position uh, has been wrong. Maybe not about every company, but the strategy that they executed and the value they created, right? And what was the driver of the value? These were things that were not well understood. But anyway, long story longer, that was a fucking before and after point for me. And so my my point in saying all that is they're working on that shit before the browser tips. Absolutely. Absolutely. Because I think even when Netscape was formed, it initially worked in the server side of the house. It was only later that the browser became the most important part of their their strategy. But I, I um, but anyway, Steve, Steve needed a way to explain what I did. I wasn't a consultant. I actually didn't take a board seat, but went, went to every board meeting um, to give my opinions. But I didn't, I didn't want to put myself in a position of being the CEO's boss. I was there to mentor them. 
Um, so I did all of that. And then he gave me the term. And then over time, as we I applied it to other businesses, like I eventually I did TiVo after that and a number of others. With Homer hanging around for part of that. I right? brought him in. I brought him in. At the, That's at what the board I thought. Level. I brought him at the board level. And he was he was great. I mean, it was so much fun to be on a board with What a Mike. legendary category designing company. You know, I think people don't give it its due because essentially nonlinear television programming started with them. You know, it's Netflix. Netflix has taken it obviously to a completely different level, but it started with TiVo. TiVo broke the bond with the schedule and that set off everything. Now you could watch things on demand that changed the world. And so it is, it is a direct, it's in a direct lineage of Netflix and, and, and all the others entering that category today. Well, and here I use them as an example, even today, even though they're not cool today, because what they did was revolutionary. Legendary category designers are great at language and they're great at framing the problem to move the world from the way it is now to the way they wanted it to be. And to me, the biggest genius of fucking TiVo was the way they framed the problem. And when they created the phrase appointment viewing, right? Why would I have to wait till eight o'clock on Thursday to see Seinfeld or friends or whatever it was, right? When they said appointment viewing, they made that term up. And another great example, I believe a demarcation point in language creates a demarcation point in thinking, which creates a demarcation point in action and behavior. And so when they say appointment viewing for the first time, you go, hey, it's bullshit that I have to wait till eight o'clock. What is this? This aggression will not stand, man. And so they were so genius at the whole thing. And of course the product was incredible and the branding. I mean, it was all upside and down. Bam, an incredible company. I agree with you. And I, and I, and I think that that phrase was brilliant positioning because it's much more than a catchphrase. It's, it's the entire positioning of the value proposition, of the company. Um, they were an amazing group of people to work with. I was super impressed. Mike Ramsey's leadership there, uh, terrific team. And they kind of lost, unfortunately they lost their creative edge around one of those corners. And I was hoping we could get that creative edge back as we saw the market go over the top. But by that point, we already had leadership in place that was more inclined towards the old industry and the cable business and all of those guys being a support infrastructure there than the new industry, you know, the, the Reed Hastings of the world at Netflix. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, you look back on it now and you go, could anybody have dealt with the fact that the cable providers themselves were essentially going to bake this in? You know, it's, it's essentially what Microsoft did to Netscape, right? When they made the browser free, Netscape used to make money on the browser. (coughs) So they're in a lot of trouble, right? And when all of a sudden your cable company for an extra, whatever, three bucks a month, five bucks a month is going to give you TiVo functionality. Well, let me tell you the punchline to that. It's an interesting one because I've, when I look back on TiVo's history and I'm asked about um, what we would have done, should have done differently. I actually think we should have sued earlier. I'm a lawyer by training, as you know, and I was very reluctant. Yeah, but I, I like you anyways. It's kind of weird. I don't know. You've got you've you've gotten rid of 
you know, I know it's still lurking in the background, <laughs> but you've gotten rid of most of your lawyer-like vibe. Perry Mason is my hero. But but what, what, I, was, what I was saying was that um, I was reluctant at the board level to back litigation when the first ca- when the first inkling of the cable guys included we we had wow. we and, and uh, we, so we had the patent rights to all of this so we owned it and so the real question was could we co-opt these guys as partners rather than make them all enemies driving them towards some new technology by suing them and so i just feeling uh, the economics of what we were offering them was so incredibly positive to them. I mean, it was literally this, the smallest tax you could imagine. I'm sure they spent so much more money trying to get their own DVRs mm. out. Nevertheless, they wouldn't do it. And um, Mike Ramsey, bless his heart, you know, he was inclined to sue. The board was advising him not. I was a trained lawyer. I was like, God, if we do this, we're going to be, this is, gonna, this is years of our lives. Go, you know, fast forward. TiVo won one of the biggest, one of the biggest um, uh, damage, uh, patent damage claims of all time, way over a billion dollars, 10 years later. So, yeah. so yes, we did eventually make a billion dollars off right. of that, but we lost the business in between. Wow. What an incredible story. Yeah. And what was it, like, why wouldn't they come to the table as partners? I think they underestimated the amount of work it would take to build their own DVRs and support that platform. So I think, you know, somebody came to them and said we could, you know, it's like a housing co- a contractor, right? Get it done in three days and three months later, they're still there. I think that's what went on for the cable guys as they got into DVR business. Um, I, I, st- I think to this day, the world would be different, not necessarily better, but maybe Tiva be Netflix if we've been able to go the progression yeah. of being a partner into this new channel and sort of being that, that provider and then opening up to content. The other thing that makes me wonder, of course, is um, in that situation, can the cable companies become investors, right? Well, I so mean, the- I'm sure I'm not the first guy to have that thought. Well, we try, so- we did that. We yeah. had them, we had some, some of them were investors. Um, Sony was a big investor, not a cable guy, but on the content side. Yeah. So we tried all of that. Yeah. And, and um, I can remember. I can't, and yet it still didn't put the, I mean, what you're trying to do is put yourself at the center of an ecosystem so that you're the sun and everything's around you. And you couldn't, you couldn't get the rest of the universe to, to align, right? Couldn't do it. You know, and it's really frustrating when you think you've got a really sound, rational, argument why it's good for everybody. Yeah. And you can't get it. You can't sell that idea. That and, and, and what was it? That- control, I think. I think there's a control thing. They didn't want to have a significant provider of this new service. I think they all saw appointment um, viewing as coming to a demise. I think they didn't want to have that in the hands of a third party. Yeah. It? So would it be sort of... Uh- I don't know, the equivalent of not wanting to outsource an operating system, you know, so sort of the situation IBM found themselves in with Microsoft in a somewhat of a surprising way, I would say, right? Yes. Yeah. Because back in the old days of the PC, you'd never think, A, the value was going to move to the software and B, that it was the control of the operating system that mattered more than who built the box. I mean, that that was not obvious, right? Well, so, you know, there's a story for everything. You know, you mentioned Mike Homer before. Here's, Here's how I met Mike Homer. 
I was at Apple in 1986 when we saw early Windows development and began to realize that there was a strong chance that while the GUI, the, the graphic user interface um, that they were developing was light years behind ours in performance and design, that suddenly we had a competitor. Yeah. And, and so- It was on. It was on. And so what happens? Mike Homer and I are deputized. I'm running the, I'm senior counsel for half of the business, mostly on the, actually the engineering and, um, and research side. Homer is working in the sales organization. He's kind of a special adjunct to, my, to the sales organization and to Scully. They put us on a plane and they go, you've got to license the operating system. We got to create the platform. Okay, so that's 86. App, the Apple OS. Homer and I are on planes, and we're on, we're on planes going back and forth to Boston. And we're dealing with what is then the biggest um, mini computer business, the big competitor to Sun, Apollo. Mm -hmm. so, Apollo. Remember that? Yes, I do. We're back and forth, and we're going to license the Macintosh OS to the mini computer business. We're going to, we're going to, we're going to protect ourselves right now in the PC business, but we're going to extend our operating platform by going out there into a place where if we're wrong, we haven't risked everything because we're really not competing there yet. And if we're right, we'll be able to start to create the ecosystem. We need to protect us. Homer and I negotiated that day. It was a hard deal. I mean, Homer and I were at each other's throats because he needed a deal and I need to protect the company. And it was just the two of us. And we're sitting there with all these execs from Apollo, rooms full of them. And I'm not budging on certain things. And Homer's trying to hit me over the head with a hammer. And how old are you guys? Homer's probably 23 or four. And I'm probably 28 or 29 yeah. at the time, right? You're the experienced guys. We're the guy. experienced guys, right? We're yeah. We get the deal signed. We get the deal signed. The operating system is about to be licensed. We bring it back to Cupertino, Scully, the Gasset, who's now who's running development at that time. And um, the day of the signing, the Apollo guys are in Logan Airport, ready to fly out. And we have to call them and tell them the deal is off. And the deal is off because... As I understand it, Jean-Louis Gasset and the development side of the house um, felt like it was too risky to license the OS and a bad business decision. And so life would have been completely different. The world would be different if we had licensed that, done that, that deal 86. with 86. Yeah. And then been able to expand on this, what I would think would have been the success there. But what I did get out of that was an incredible uh, lifelong bond with Mike Homer. Wow. That's a stunner. That's an incredible story. I still have the, I, th I think I still have the, uh, the, the, the agreement, the draft agreement that was never signed. That would be an incredible document. <laughs> no, you should, you should, seriously, you should give that to the oh, computer the museum. Line. That's a great idea. Actually. That's some shit right there. That's a, that's a great idea. That's some interesting... Behind the music, Good. way behind the music shit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's behind the music, <laughs> behind the music. <laughs> yeah, what a time. What a time. It was a fun time. It was a fun time because we were just, we were just making it up as we went along. I mean, we didn't know what we were doing. 
Um, but we were, we just felt so empowered by a vision of, a, you know, this great world we were creating, you know, the, mm. the, this, this, the Silicon Valley utopia. I think, you know, Apple at that time was, was a, a real product yeah. of tech, of the utopian technology of the seventies. When the, when the, the summer of love moved out into the suburbs and you ended up with communes of programmers and computer hardware developers, which there were, I mean, then, then you ended up uh, creating a, a company whose aspiration was to avoid the Orwellian future, to avoid 1984. That was the vision. But how crazy we are where we are then. It's, I, but don't get me started. <laughs> well, I am getting you started here. I got to do, there's my data point of the month for sure. IDC says by 2025, uh, is there 8 billion of us? Yeah, we're getting there. So it's 7 billion will be on. And if there's 7 billion of us, then it's 6 billion. It's all but 1 billion will be on by 2025 to connected devices, point A. But here's the one that really blows my head up. You ready for this? The average person will interact with a connected device 4,800 times a day. Yeah, right. Because of, because of the connected homes and because of, you know. Connected beds and exactly. connected fucking fart trappers and I don't even, sleep monitors and dreams. Who knows what? Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, I, I, I really am, I, I, I try to make a, a strong effort to make sure that none of those things are in my house. My, when I'm on my phone, which is seldom actually, when I'm on my phone, um, I don't let it report my location. So, I mean, I do all of that stuff. Um, you keep, but you, you know, I, I, I'm not Ted Kaczynski, right? I'm not, you can't sort of just go up into the woods and lock yourself into a, into a hut. Well, you couldn't get off the grid if you wanted to. Not How a, would you get off the grid? I don't, you know, even if I, what would you have to do to get off the grid? Well, for me, I mean, all my communications are either by text or by, um, you know, by email. So, I'd be in trouble. I'd be in real trouble. Yeah. Um, we're on the grid and it's over. We're on the machines won. <laughs> we're on the grid and it's, and it's over. That's right. <laughs> but how funny that this sort of uh, hippy dippy technology company um, mm. who wanted to protect us from the man, one could argue is no. the man. Well, so here's, here's my the theory. No, am I being shitty? <laughs> no, no, no. Here's, here's, so here's, here's my thesis, my thesis on this, which was, I, I think the world divides into two significant, um, um, significantly different technology demographics in the Valley. I think initially I would describe what was the remnants of the sixties bleeding into the technology and personal computer, uh, of the seventies and eighties, I would call those guys the technology utopians, as I referred to. And I think that they came to technology with a sense that um, they could use these tools to upend the legacy infrastructures that they felt were oppressive and to empower individuals. That's why the, per that's why it was a personal computer that really got this um, going in the yes. valley, not a mini computer, right? It wasn't right. the 128 stuff. Wasn't 128 stuff. But here's what happens. I think by the time of Facebook, 
for sure. And you could argue the PayPal, um, the PayPal mafia were part of this. We moved from technology utopians to technology libertarians. They had a, they were into technology for a diff, with a different sensibility. The utopians had a sense of a social contract. They were involved because they felt like they needed to make the world better. And these tools and the advantages they had with these tools gave them the opportunity to challenge the status quo. And you really think that's true? Because a lot of people would hear that and go, come on, Comazar, you've lived in California too long. That's fruity-tooty, airy-fairy, wanky-danky stuff. And the reality is, you know, the... The founders of Apple just wanted to make a bunch of money. They may have wanted to make a lot of money, but that was the first derivative of what they really wanted to do. And what they really wanted to do is. And there's no, because I I believe you, by the way, because I'm, you know, I'm a sucker for what I think entrepreneurship really is. I think it's, I think, I think it's the, the art and science of true creation. I don't, I I don't, you know, Warhol said, um, business is the most fascinating kind of art, Mm. right? And, and, and there is something, it's a creative endeavor. You're creating shit, products and companies and new offices and relationships. And it's, it's an ongoing daily creation. And so I, I think that's fascinating. And I, I believe that motivation. I think a lot of people could be cynical about it. I just have chosen not to be. I think, I think there's a, there's a balance in, in everybody about what their intents and interests are. I think what brought what brought a generation to the to PC software and hardware in the valley was a sense of purpose. Yeah. Right? And I have no doubt about that. That's not to say money wasn't involved. And um, and as you could see with things like Jobs' ability to move Apple into being the most valuable company in the world for a moment, um, what you can see there is that the tools of business and the platform that you build is just raises the creative endeavor. It's yes. not a take the money and run situation. That money gets invested in more ideas, more vision. Um, yes, you need to make a profit. We're, this is this is called business, but but that profit can fuel creativity or consumption. Yes, you get to choose. Yeah, and and, and some of both. Right, and that's yeah. some of both. Some of both. And I think the economic uh, incentive is a good one, mm. and. I had this aha recently in my conversation with uh, Heidi. She was telling me, I hope I'm getting this right. If I'm getting this wrong, I apologize. But I think what she was telling me was she was at some event with Reed Hoffman. And there was some discussion about, you know, Apple and, and Google and Microsoft being too powerful and Amazon, you know, these trillion dollar market cap companies and, and monopolies and this and that and the other. And apparently... Reed Hoffman makes the following comment, which is like, hey, um, aren't you glad all of those companies are run by us? Oh, my God. Like, what if Google was a Chinese company or a Russian company? Right, yeah. I had never thought about that. Yeah. Well, there, I mean. Right? Isn't it great? But, but you know. <laughs> if there's going to be dominant Kings of the, and queens of the internet. Just, isn't it good that like our side won? Well, yeah. I mean, I think having won, I think we have won for at least this battle. But I mean, go to China and watch a billion and a half people operate in a completely different world. And you realize there's a lot of smart people out there. We haven't won. Um, but 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 let me go. Let me go back to that issue of aren't you glad they're, they're ours? Um, I, 
I think that there, we, we have to come to grips with the fact that our success, the success of this valley, success of us as individuals in the valley, creates power. And that ultimately that power needs to be balanced against social interests. We call that politics. And I think that, that we need to understand that that balance is a dynamic balance and it's part of the contract. We should expect that if you build a behemoth of the, of the reach and power of Google, that ultimately it's going to run into a bunch of regulation. And it should. I mean, right. an, an unregulated market is not a capitalist dream. It's a capitalist nightmare. Because if you have unregulated greed that is now unfettered in terms of power and scale, it's, it then has, there's no self-correction in that process. The market can't correct for that power. A libertarian might argue with you about that. Well, that, and that's where I go back. Okay, now you bring me back to the techno-libertarians. <laughs> and I think techno-libertarians, by the way, are not drawn to technology and creativity in the valley for the same reasons utopians were. I think they're drawn with a much more much more of a sense of um, of the of individualism rather than the social context that the utopians were facing. Huh. And I think that that's led to a lot of the decision making that you see. In so you're places. thinking about just to put a fine point on it: the motivations of a Wozniak and Jobs versus the motivations of uh, of a Zuckerberg. Very different, very different. I can see why I can see why Zuckerberg and Jobs reportedly never got along. I mean, they would just see the world as too. Even though they both look like successful technology billionaires, yeah. young prodigies, yeah. I could imagine Jobs looking at Zuckerberg saying, "What, what are you creating? Right? I mean, un, un, what is the impact of this? What, what's the, what is the, what's the world going to be like at the end of this?" And I could see Zuckerberg looking around going, I don't give a clue. So there was a real idealist in him. Oh, yeah. I think, now, I don't know in the end how that got rebalanced, but I mean, Jobs, I, I was at Lucas when we sold Jobs Pixar, right? Yeah. Right? Actually, I was rep actually at that point, I was outside counsel to them, but I was representing them in that deal, right? The Lucas side, obviously. I represent the Lucas side. And when Jobs, Jobs had just been kicked out of Apple, just been thrown out of Apple. It's 85-ish, I think. Um, and he thought he was buying a, uh, a server business. We talked about this, right? Right. Yeah. So I think what's really important to realize is he, he, he had a real sense of, 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 um, of what he wanted to accomplish with Pixar that was decades ahead of where the market was. I mean, we thought we had a rendering engine for making movies and stuff. He was looking for a way of sort of creating a platform of creativity again. Yeah. And it was about being bigger, not smaller. It was about enabling others, not institutions to create. You know, it's, it's interesting you say that um, Mike Maples uh, Jr. says that legendary entrepreneurs create abundance. Mm. And he, he, has, he has an argument and I don't want to put words in his mouth. So this is, this is my interpretation of what I think he says. <laughs> But something to the effect of that essentially the old paradigm of economics is even wrong. Mm. It's predicated on a scarcity of bananas mm. when we can create abundance now in a way that sort of we can deal with scarcity. Scarcity isn't what it used to be. Yeah, that uh, all made out to be. Um, it never was, it turns yeah, out, yeah. It never was. But, but I don't, 
I do think that that there's always been this point of view out there. It's I think more pronounced now that um, taking a view of of opportunities as ones of abundance changes the way in which you view things, changes the way in which you look at risk, changes the tenacity and the commitment to the ideal. So I think that's that's very important. But I I I also believe that. Um, in the long term, it's it's it is not it is not simply about abundance, because we've created a lot of abundance here. It's one of the reasons I would say one of the big reasons I moved from the East Coast to West Coast in the '80s was because all the industries I saw on the East Coast were um, built upon scarcity and were in and, and felt like they need to extract value. They were taking money from the pockets of customers, not delivering a service to customers, right? That's the mentality. And suddenly, competitively, you're fighting for micropoints in market share, Coke and Pepsi, example. When I looked at the West Coast, what I saw was people were creating value. They weren't extracting value. They could create it. It was, it was alchemy. And that made business very different because now you didn't look at it as predatory. It wasn't, it wasn't combat, per se. It was a real sense of a competition of ideas, a competition of creative design and vision. That became the possibility. So you were no longer, you weren't being compensated for ringing another decimal point out of the profit margin. Um, you were being celebrated because you had some breakthrough idea that didn't exist before that hopefully was constructive. Now, here's, here's the thing, point I want to make, though. I used to feel like that was enough. I always felt like I was proud to be part of a business and industry that created so much value. I would say that the what what we see now in behaviors um, in Silicon Valley, in particular amongst the probably the most successful institutions, I think it behooves us to ask one more question: What are we creating, and what impact will that have? on the world. It's not good enough to come up with a new idea that you think people are going to buy and, and write you a check for. That's not good enough. I think if we're going to rely on, on our, um, our romance with creating abundance, if we're going to rely on that, and that, and that feeds my soul here, right? Mm. If we're going to rely on that, then we have to ask the next question every time, which is, so what? We've created this. Are people's lives better? Are they worse like they are right now? I would argue with what Facebook and Twitter created without a sense of, of, um, uh, of understanding of where that was going. I mean, unintended- so you think we're worse off because of Facebook and Twitter? I think, we have, um, I think we have a president who's not qualified to be president of the United States because of Facebook and Twitter. Wow. And I think the world is worse off. I think our allies in Europe are worse off because of the man in the White House. And one step removed, the mediums that got him there. And those mediums, I don't think were naive. I think they were prisoners of their greedy business model. And that model led them to um, overlook these weaknesses in their system. Unintended consequences aren't unforeseeable consequences. And while we may not intend to do wrong, if we adopt certain things in our business, 
business model, for instance, where the customer is the product, then you can map out. I mean, I would challenge them in a day to sit down with somebody and they could have worked out where this could possibly lead and what they should be doing to make sure it doesn't get there. Wow. Those are some big statements, Randy. Well, I believe them. And, you know, and I, I, and in 85, 80, or 85, 2005, 2006, when I was, when, when um, I was looking at all the social networks, I'd sat down with Reed um, uh, Hoffman and we talked a little bit about LinkedIn. I was just getting a sense of what was going on in there. I decided to join none of them, none of them. So you can't find me on Facebook. I never joined LinkedIn. I'm not on Twitter. And I did that. Not because it was convenient. In fact, it made life inconvenient for a while, at least for a while. I did that because it was quite clear to me where it was going. That if I was the product, then my data was the asset. And, that be, and suddenly I was exposing myself to the world in a way that I wasn't comfortable prepared to do. Wow. So, I mean, most of us make the trade. And here's the amazing thing. Um, I don't think most of us knew we were making the trade. And I certainly don't think most of us thought about it. And I had this experience recently and I'm still a little freaked out by it. So I haven't done 23andMe or any of that because for exactly that reason, I'm like, you got to be out of your mind to fucking pay somebody to take your DNA to monetize your DNA. Like that, my head explodes. And so I ain't doing that. But here's what I did do at the airport a couple months ago. Long line, trying to get through. Group of us, my wife, who you met, very busy, very effective. Clear. Sign up for clear. It takes two seconds. You go to the front of the line. Excellent. Boom, boom, boom. Good clear. I'm on the other side of clear. It was awesome, incredible. And literally, as I'm getting out of the security, it strikes me. I don't, I just gave these people my finger. I don't even know who clear is. What is clear? I don't even know what I just did, but they have my fucking fingerprints now. Yeah. And it happened in a nanosecond. Yeah. Well, I do think convenience trumps um, confidentiality at some, at some point. And there's no question that there's a lot of data about me everywhere. I mean, I'm sure from my, from my other activities, I do use Amazon a lot. Um, their convenience I get from Amazon is worth my giving them more. They've made it. They've made that work um, for me. So you make the trade. And there I made the trade, right? There I made the trade. I also trust that I, I, I have some trust in their desire to protect the data and their capabilities of protecting. But AWS gets hacked all the time. You, yes. hardly, you don't hear about it that much. Yes. But if you pay attention or you listen to Grumpy Old Geeks, one of my favorite <laughs> podcasts, the, the Grumpsters are on this. <laughs> AWS gets hacked. There was recently a Brian Schulmeister and I, one of the Grumpy Geeks, uh, talked about this. I, it was a hundred something million. I mean, it was a giant number. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I'm I'm sure they get hacked a lot. And I'm sure, I mean, there's probably no safety for, for data. You just have to be careful what data you're giving away. Yeah, the other great one was, I, I forget which one, but one, some porn site got hacked. Uh, oh, <laughs> Like usage data. And, and that, so now they got your credit card number. Extortion. And they know what you're into. Exactly. Like what's going to happen? What are you going to have to pay on the fucking, in cryptocurrency for that? <laughs> well, and the Europeans get, get chastised a lot, but I do think they're, they're, 
protection um, of data and the recent legislation, GTPR, I think it, that is, I think it's, it's, it's certainly directionally what we have to, we should be doing. We, if the average person is willing to trade wampum from Manhattan every day, you mean they're <laughs> going to trade their data for the slightest convenience, I mean, if that's what they're going to do, then we kind of have to protect them because we're protecting society. We have to protect society. Well, and, and you know, look, are there negative things about social media? Of course. And there's been lots said and written, blah, blah, blah. That said, there's a lot of positive and I don't think it gets talked about very much. And I hear that you're not on these things. And I go, <laughs> you know, that's a bummer because you're there. Are, look, there's a lot of bad shit you're not you're not missing, but there's a lot of good shit you are missing. Mm. You know, I've developed relationships with people on these things that are like substantial, right? Um, and so I think they're amazing communication tools and collaboration tools and information tools. And, uh, you know, if you have a fun Instagram feed and you're killing five minutes and you squirt through your Instagram feed and there's surf pictures and muscle cars and shit in there, you know, so th there's shit that's not bad is my point. I, 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 I wouldn't, I wouldn't label it as bad. I wouldn't label it as bad at all. I mean, I, I live off the content I get, for instance, in podcasts. Yeah. I love podcasts, right? They've really just changed my life in a positive way. A little really? Bit like, well, yes, because sort of like it, it, it exposed a, a, a whole generation of, of voices that we would have never heard. Yeah. With interesting things to say and interesting beads on the world. It allowed people to get very niche. Right. Yeah. You know, if there's somebody who wants to just do a podcast on guitar picks, they can do it. Yeah. Right. They can do it. So it allows for that. And, and I think it also allows it, it gets, it does the same thing we tried to do at TiVo, which is it, it's no, it's no longer appointment viewing. And we kind of take the, we try to take the, the broadcaster out of the picture so they can't get in the way of me and my media. So that's why, I, that's why I love podcasts. Wow. That's, I think that's a profound insight. And I think you're absolutely right. I'm just looking. Is there a guitar pick podcast? <laughs> oh, so, so there's one called Cycle 60 Cycle Hum, the guitar podcast. So this was the first one that came up. So I, it's got a guitar pick logo. <laughs> <laughs> that's why it came up. No, it looks like, oh, wait a minute. The guitar pick table. What's this? Each and every week, we sit around the, the guitar pick table and talk about anything and everything that crosses our minds. Follow us on social media at Guitar Pick Table. There you go. So there take, you go. I'll take that one. It's got no ratings and reviews, and there's <laughs> no, ten nobody's ten gonna episodes. Listen to it. That's the beauty about a lot of these podcasts. It looks like they might have given up. It's, they go they go to April uh, 2019, um, but they haven't had one since April 2019. Come come back. Come back, <laughs> guitar pick table people. <laughs> oh. So um, you got me in some trouble. Uh-oh. Yeah. So last time you and I were together, we talked about venture capitalists. And essentially, I'm paraphrasing my memory of the conversation. <laughs> so you, you, you correct and interrupt. But that what had happened over the course of several a couple of decades here is there's been a bifurcation in our world around venture capital. And there's sort of what I would call wall street professional 
venture capital, money-making, serious money-making SOBs. Um, and there are the craft VCs who started the venture capital industry in Silicon Valley and, and continue. I mean, many, you were with one of the founding firms for quite some time, right? And these firms continue and, and, and in many cases thrive. And I, sort of, I left that conversation with, okay, so they're the craft VCs, and they're these Wall Streets. And you made the comment earlier, it's the difference between value extraction and value creation. And so I did a podcast and a blog about that, and I got myself in a lot of trouble. <laughs> did you look where the emails were coming from and the texts were coming from? Were they East Coast, West Coast? Well, here's what they were saying. Those folks wouldn't exist, and entrepreneurs wouldn't take, in many cases, hundreds of millions of dollars from them if there wasn't something in it for the entrepreneurs. So who are you, whiny dude who doesn't get it, if it wasn't good for the entrepreneurs, they wouldn't do it. Well, I don't think extraction is necessarily bad for the customer, in that case, the entrepreneur. Um, I just think you need to understand what the motivations are of the investors and how they'll make decisions in a difficult, in a, when, when things get tough. I, what I'm always interested in- And understand what you're signing. Exactly. Entrepreneurs don't understand how these exactly. preferences work and how there's a scenario that says, these folks make a lot of money and you who actually built the company don't make that much money. So you sort of now work for us. Your, your company is now your job and your lawyer maybe didn't make that clear to you. I don't know how the fuck that happens, but that happens. Like these things, these are real things. Yeah. Oh, I, I, I'm going to plug my book. Can I plug my book? Plug your okay, plug. Okay. It, yeah. I have, I have, a, I have a whole section on this in straight talk for startups. And, um, and I try to show the kind of the irony of it without being cynical, because I go through an example of how you can have a billion dollar business and a billion dollar outcome and not have any money for your entrepreneurs and for your team. That shit happens. It happens. It happens. And I show in the book, how I, I, I show the math. I show the math. This is how it happens, right? It's you don't have to go far to understand in a situation where you've got financial engineering at the other side, where people are, for instance, insisting that, yeah, you want a billion dollar valuation. I think you're worth half a billion, but I'll give you the billion dollar valuation and two on, on two conditions. One, you let me write a bigger check because I got this big fund and I want to own a certain percentage. So I'm going to beef it up. And, um, and two, that you understand that, um, that, that I need to get a guaranteed return on my money. Guaranteed. Guaranteed. So if you go, I'm putting in money at a billion. If you go public at a billion, then I want you to give me a, a three to one split on my stock so that I get three times the advantage. I mean, and there, and, and I just gave you one scenario. There are, there are hundreds of different ways of splitting that up. But if you're going to give somebody a valuation that doesn't make sense, I'm not assuming you're stupid. I'm assuming you protected yourself. And as you describe it, I never connected this dot. You tell me if this is, if this is a valid way to think about it. It almost sounds like the mortgage crisis. When all of a sudden we take um, a set of economic guidelines or boundaries that, that have been fairly standard for quite some time, in many cases, decades, for a reason, and for whatever reason, people say the famous line, it's different now. Yeah. 
And so we break all those and now we're giving, you know, mortgages to people with no money down or, you know, 1%. And I don't know what, what was the, wasn't the rule like 20 or 25% minimum for a long time? Oh my goodness. Yeah. You at least had to put 20% down. Yeah. And now it was zero or one or whatever the fuck it was. Right. And then the interest rates and the whole thing. And uh, we ended up where we ended up. It's a little bit like that. Yeah. Uh, Well, Yes, yes, yes. I, I, I think, again, as, as we've spoken about it in the past, um, I think we have to come to grips with the fact that the Silicon Valley has changed from being a center of innovation focused on entre- the needs of entrepreneurs to essentially being a capital market where in a time, now a decade of low interest rates, Big institutional funds are looking to juice their returns that are nominally poor on the risk on a risk adjusted basis and are willing to pump what is very small amounts of money for them, but distortive amounts of money into the valley. Distortive. Right? And into the valley. And suddenly you're overwhelmed with capital and the needs of capital rather than the needs of entrepreneurs. And if you were to ask me to split in, in, in venture capitalists, um, I probably would, I, I agree with your split. I'd probably, I'd probably slice it again. And mm. I'd slice it again between those investors who are entrepreneurs investing in entrepreneurs. You've done something before. Yeah, you may not have started a business, but you were part of a startup group. You understand that process, right? And what I would call the MBA investors, the ones who were looking to go into hedge funds 10 years ago are now looking to come to um, Silicon Valley and they don't understand anything about entrepreneurs or entrepreneurship. They're focused on capital. So the reason that I think Silicon Valley is not headed for an immediate crash, not one that's different from the rest of the economy, um, is because yes, we are paying too much on a risk-adjusted basis for these ventures. Yes, the returns are, jet, are, are poorly distributed and, on a, and again, on a risk-adjusted basis, much lower than you would expect for the amount of time it takes to get returns and the small returns that these big funds are getting. So those things are um, part and parcel of, what, of the world we live in today. And it has been distorted by this new capital coming in that wants to write big checks. Um, doesn't care about valuations, financially architects the other side to the disadvantage of entrepreneurs and their, and their teams with stock options, that I, I think that, that that is a problem, a big problem, and it is a change, and you can feel it in the Valley. And my sense is um, at least in some cases, got, hard to know, what percentage entrepreneurs don't really get what they're doing well, going back in to some cases comment, um, because I, I've talked to some of them. You've talked to some of them. We're like, well, we created a billion dollar outcome. We created a $15 billion outcome. I'm like, great. So you like shopping for Hawaiian islands? Like, what okay. are you doing? He's like, well, uh, yeah, you know, I kind of still need to work. What do you mean? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> what? Yeah. 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 No, it, it, uh, entrepreneurs need to be educated by more than their peers. 
you know, you, you'll hear, it's, I'll, I'll be in a discussion and somebody say, well, this is the way these deals go down. And there'll be like 25. And they're explaining it to me. And the reason they think that's the way deal goes, deals go down is because they're hanging around with a bunch of other 25-year-olds and they're all sort of doing their deals, some with good investors, most with bad investors. And so they're kind of changing. They, in their minds, there's a normative deal and, and it's whatever their friends are getting. Um, that expectation is naive and poorly informed. There are a lot of people who understand what these deals look like and why they look the way they look and how the, where the pitfalls in are. Uh, and you, those are the people you need to be consulting and involved in your, your own development. That's, that's what a board director should look like. Hmm. So maybe let's talk about that. You know, we had Coco Brown on not that long ago talking about that there's been a pretty big shift in, in thinking around board. So what do you think a board should look like today? And what do you think a board should do? Well, I think there's a difference between public company and private company. Yeah. Right. So on a private company side, I think boards should be operational. They should have an appreciation for the ebb and flow of the entrepreneurial process. Um, and uh, they should be helpful, not just to the company, but to the CEO, right? Personally, because you've got a CEO who's under maximum stress and often developing in real time. You know, it's so funny you say that because uh, what I've learned as an advisor board, if the CEO calls and you can tell she or he is kind of freaked out, the last thing there is to do is act in any way freaked out. Exactly. <laughs> Even if inside your mind you're going, I can't fucking believe what the fuck, whatever. Like no matter what's going on in your head. Right. Now, invariably, I you probably find this, but like at, at the stage of life I'm at, if I'm freaking out in my head, something beyond, expo like, I mean, you know, like you, when you've been to the show so many times, like it's whatever's going, like you've been to the show, you're not going to surprise me. Oh, okay. You're doing that. All right. Well, I know how that one ends, right? Like, and so anyway, my point is you want to be Fonzie when that call comes in, because that's what, that's what you're there for. It is. I mean, you got a lot of management leadership. Well, let's put it this way. A lot of leadership is emotional. That's why we've, I mean, I think that's why emotional intelligence when the book was written has been so important is because it made legitimate at least the discussion of and the valuing of emotional IQ, not just intellectual IQ. Well, yeah. And, you know, Jerry Colonna's new book, yeah. Killer, yeah. right? And uh, again, I'm paraphrasing, so I might get this wrong, but I, I almost positive it was Ben Horowitz and I'm, it goes something like this. When I was a, a startup CEO, I slept like a baby. I woke up every two to three hours screaming for my mommy. <laughs> yeah. Right? Yeah. Not for the faint of heart. You know, it really takes sort of a manic personality to feed off of that. You can see the difference between a CEO, a founder who got there kind of intellectually and a founder who got there emotionally, because the ones who get there emotionally they almost feed off that energy of the crisis, right? I mean, it's, you know, double down and we're going we're gonna to win and this is what we're going to do. And then you see the others who sort of look at it and go, oh, I'm doomed. I'm just doomed. The other one, 
I remember very specifically when it happened, when I had this realization, oh, all of you fuckers are crazy. <laughs> Every single last one of you. I've never met a CEO who isn't at least a little crazy. Well, and okay, get to plug my book again. There's a chapter in there, essentially about um, backing the lunatics. So people say, what's my job? And my job is very simple. I sit across the table from lunatics who are essentially, um, uh, you know, sort of uh, hyperventilating the future, right? Yeah. That's what they're doing. And so that's my job. My job is everyone who works in my office has is, is, is got to be a, a slightly a lunatic or they, why would they be taking the risk to do something that's never been done before? Well, do you know Lars Darlgaard? <laughs> oh, yeah. Sure I've, yeah I've read, sure, I've read his book. Right. So Lars, right? Well, uh, Forbes said something about him being a little bit crazy. And after we worked together, I, I wrote a piece and uh, I, I think the headline was a little bit of crazy goes a long way. Mm. Right. And people, and people will say, oh, well, he's a little crazy. And I go, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah he is. Well, but he's awesome. Right. right? And, and, and like, who do you think does this? Right? Like, who do you think makes this happen? Yeah. Not, you have to be crazy to think that A, the future is going to be different. And B, you're going to be the person who makes it different. <laughs> By definition, that makes you fucking crazy. I totally agree with that. I, 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 think, I think that it's important. My job, I'm a talent management person. I mean, if, I've had to think back on what I do well and what I don't do well and why I do what I do. And it goes right back to when I was working in the concert promotion business. It was about being close to the artist. It was about being close to the creativity, to the talent. And the more of those people I met, the more I realized none of them were quote unquote normal. And I mean that in a very positive way. Yeah. They, so let's tell me about some of these people. <laughs> who? Well, let's I mean, get specific. <laughs> well, I'm just trying to, I mean, in those days, who did we, who did we, who did we um, promote? I mean, um, we, we had, uh, I mean, I, I still remember Elvis Costello coming through and spending a bunch of time. He came through twice with us and I spent time with him over dinner and, um, an interesting cat, right? I mean, a really, really interesting cat. Is his aim true? Uh, I met him. So I, he came through twice. First time he came through, he was alone. We put him in a 3000 seater. We probably sold 1500 tickets. Um, he was incredibly down to earth, sat around the dinner table, chatted up. Everybody's there. You know, it wasn't just me. It was really fun. Yeah. Second time, he's made it. He's coming through town again. This time, he's with Jerry Hall. So Jerry Hall is... Um, Jerry Hall used to be Mick Jagger's wife, exactly. Jerry Hall? She was Mick Jagger's... Well, I had to dig that one out That's deep. Right. I, I had to get through several layers of whiskey to get that connection through. <laughs> you get what well, you got there. And you got there in the nick of time. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Yes. So he's got Jerry Hall. So now suddenly Jerry Hall's with him. She kind of moves from arm to arm in, the, in, that, in that business. In the and how big of a place is he playing this time? Oh, God. I think we had him. That wasn't that huge. I think it was probably 6,000 seater, but it was sold out. Okay. So he went from 1,500 to 6,000. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I think next time he comes through, he's at 10,000. So- but he's with Jerry Hall, and he's not really talking to anybody. I mean, to talk to him is sort of, a, is it, 
is sort of getting an autograph. I mean, it's that kind of thing. Okay, so he's, he's lost he's it. He's lost it. He's just sitting with Jerry Hall, and she's sort of, you know, um, cocooning with him, and that's it. So you don't see much. And so, so, so Elvis Costello was an interesting interaction. Um, Bob Weir and, and Phil Lesh came through, um, not with Jerry. That was a different, they were with some kingfish or something at the time, I think. They came through. They were interesting. We played ping pong. This is how I knew, this is how I knew that the world was going to be different. I got the, basically I've got Lesh I th- and, and I think it was, I think it's Lesh and Weir. I, maybe it was Hart and Weir. God knows what King was at that, Kingfish was at that point. But I got a lot of the dead with me. And in those days, we were used to making sure that our um, that clientele got whatever they wanted. So if the dead want X, the dead guys get, get X. X. Right? You know, it's like you just, you look the other way and this is- Trains, planes, automobiles, donkeys. What they wanted was not the usual. What they wanted was fine wine. They wanted a good French Rothschild. And I'm thinking, this is the dead, right? For the last, at that point, 15 or 18 years, they've been living off whatever is moving around, and suddenly they want fine wine. And by, and by the way, none of the other stuff, just the fine wine. And you're thinking, pay attention to world's changing, right? Pay attention to world's changing. Um, <laughs> Who else do we have? We used to we used to have little feet in a lot. Yeah, um, and I they a lot. They we were very close with those guys, and so they were they were always. A, Lowell George was one of the best guitarists of all times. So mm. Just a great great guitarist. But but I also loved his his uh, I loved his singing and composing. And he was an interesting character, um, and imbibed way too much. Um, you know, Linda Ronstadt. We had Bonnie Raitt was, I think, even slightly more interesting. I think I meant Linda Ronset for half a second. Um, so we had some really interesting women. She, when Bonnie Raitt came, she was playing an outdoor festival with um, a couple of, of old jazz, or old bluesmen, and they were fantastic. I love Bonnie Raitt. She was wonderful. And she was smart and, and her, you know, and, and just really on top of it. I was very, I really liked, liked her. Um, Let's see, we had Emmy Lou Harris come through. Oh my God, she, she's she just, so incredible. At that time, all I remember from her about her was dark black hair to the essentially below her waist. Wow. Right? Below her waist. And now I think about her and I can't picture her other than with that sort of platinum white hair. Her stuff with Mark Knopfler oh. is beyond, she's, um, like it's fucking insane. Well, she's been in that business. Think of how long she's been in that business. For. Ever. She was in the background forever. When I put, when, when I put her, when we put her on and it was 74, 73, and she was probably on her third band. Right. Mm, wow. I mean, I think, so it was, she was, she was, she was a, she's real, and she's still very influential. I mean, there's, yeah. a, there's a country, I think this week on PBS or next week on PBS is a series, a Ken Burns series on country music. And, you know, of course, Bonnie Raitt's one of the go-to people in that. Yeah. Yeah, and it, all of it, the the songwriting, mm. the guitar playing, and of course the voice. Yeah. Yeah. So like what a life you're having. So, okay, so there's this whole music life you have and you do all that. And then there's George Lucas. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then there's Steve Jobs, <laughs> right? And and then there's John Doerr and all the legends at Kleiner Perkins. Mm. Like, hey, too bad you didn't get to work with anybody, eh? Well, I think that's been the, so, we, you know, we, we talked about this in the beginning. My, my resume looked like a checkerboard. But this is the real benefit of that, which is I've had so many different experiences. I've learned a ton. I've become the, I mean, literally the jack of all trade, master of none, because, you know, I, I get to about the 80% level in any one of these things. And it's like, okay, I know how to get to 100. It's not worth the effort. Let's keep going, right? Let, open another door. And that's kind of what my life has always been like. It's like you get to, you get good. Get really good. Maybe get really, really good for a moment. But you also have to have a little ADHD or something, because you, you, you. The thing about the virtual CEO is you took what at the time would have been viewed as a uh, liability. Hey, man, you're only in these jobs for a short period of time, and you said, no, no, that's actually what I do now. That's actually that's why I'm here. <laughs> I'm the I'm around for a while guy. <laughs> it's so insightful that you see that connection because that's very true. That's a hundred percent true. It, when I sat down to figure out what I was going to do next. You monetize getting fired. I, I figured out what my strengths were <laughs> and I didn't let them be called a weakness. It's like, okay, so, okay, th that's a strength. I need to, you call it a weakness, I need to turn it into a strength. Yes. Because I do it too well and if it's a weakness, I'm screwed. Yeah. Right? So, yeah. No, no but you see it in baseball, right? Mm. Um, uh, Rivera. Mm. One inning. Three outs. Exactly. The whole fucking career. You're Three done. outs. You're done. You're done. Six outs is a huge. <laughs> he needs like a week off after You're six outs. You're done. Right? And then they're starting pitchers who want to throw a complete game all the time. I, I don't think they let them do that very much anymore. In the old days, mm -hmm. if the if, if the guy had a good game going, they'd let, let him pitch go. the whole game. But I think they I think they sit him down. But still, you know, Madison Bumgarner wants to pitch the whole game. Yeah, I, I, I've always been, I just love ideas. Yeah. I love ideas. So I'm always seduced by the next idea. Yeah. Um, so, I, and, and. And so if, if I was a young person and I know, I know you mentor a lot of young entrepreneurs. I say, hey, Randy, let's forget about companies and categories and products and technologies for a second. What a fucking career, man. I mean, when you go through the list of people and the kinds of initiatives and things you've worked on and the companies you've been part of and so forth and so on, you, you know, you're literally one of those guys who worked with a meaningful number of the legends in the history of the industry and certainly the people who were the legends at the time, right? I mean, you were more than in the mix. <laughs> I feel like the Forrest Gump of the Valley, right? You know, it's sort of just show up. and. The reason I got those opportunities were the people that I knew. And as you, as you alluded to even you know earlier, my personality is not to be liked. So the people I knew, I had to impress with what I did because I didn't spend a lot of time. Heidi Roizen, you, you, you talked about, I think is one of the best networkers of all time. And mm -hmm. I consider and I think of it, and I consider that an incredible asset. I don't I don't use that in the slightest bit in a derogatory way. Yeah, yeah. She's just able to create so much value from the people she knows. I am the opposite. I have gotten, the doors that have opened for me have been based upon the fact that that guy does the job, right? That guy said, he's a decent guy, he's a decent person, and he does the job. So yeah, do, have him do this. So that's how I get passed around by great people, but I didn't get passed around with great people because I spent all my time sending him champagne. 
right? It's yeah. because I just go do the work and mind my business. Look, I know this is going to make me sound grumpy, but <laughs> uh, this is to me the distinction, personal brand and reputation. Oh, that, yeah. So today we've confused contriving an image with fucking delivering massive results such that people go, yeah, call that guy, right? Why is Heidi Rosen Heidi Rosen? Well, she's delivered results for decades, right? Yeah, yeah. I, uh, and so like, it's called a reputation. Um, and the interesting thing, by the way, about the reputation that both of you share, and it's actually a, a dot I'm con connecting in real time here, um, in both cases, I felt like I knew you before I knew you because of, because of, because of not only did you have a reputation, it was very clear what it was, like even at a nuanced level, right? I was not, I, I, I met exactly who I expected to meet when I met her and I met exactly who I, ex I mean, I had heard stories about you doing things in board meetings and <laughs> stories from Homer and like, you know, we were a hair away for a very long time, right? And so it's interesting when the rep lines up. Well, it, it, and I love your distinction. I had not heard that distinction before. I'm going to use it, you know, um, going forward. I think that a rep, you can't fake a reputation. No. You can fake a brand. Right. Companies do it every freaking day. And, and we know they're lying. Work. We know they're right. full of shit. Exactly. And we know, you know, your friends on Facebook are full of shit with their photos. And, you know, people's LinkedIn resumes are full of shit. And so people are branding, are branding themselves. But reputation can't be faked. It's what, it, it's just what is. Yeah. And right? look, I... I don't know if this is 100% true, but my spider sense is most industries are actually feel small. We're in what most people would call a very big industry. It feels very small to me. You and I are one or one and a half degrees of separation from almost anybody. Like if you wanted to get to fill in the blank name in the industry, the likelihood you could get to that person's really high. And likewise, when anybody's looking at doing anything with anybody, their ability to do a back channel check on you is very, very high. Yes. Yeah. I mean, it, it, there, there's a, yes, I'm a known quantity out there. I do think the world's changing though. As I watch it become more crowded and more frenzied, world meaning particularly our world here, um, as I watch it get more frenzied, I, I begin to wonder if I was 25 today, if I could have did, if I could have accomplished what I accomplished with my personality, meaning I am slightly introverted, maybe not the right term, but I do think it's the right term because I get my energy from being alone. I spend my energy on others, right? That's yeah. kind of the, so I, yep. I, I, so my introversion and my refusal to toot my own horn or, advertise or sell myself, my refusal, my utter disdain at that. I'm not sure. I'm not sure anybody would have ever noticed me in the Valley given the noise in the today. I think, you know, I hate to say this, but my experience suggests that's true because, uh, I think I got it mostly, but um, it's, it's hard. 
it's hard to do the kinds of things. I think if you look at venture capital, you have to be really well known. You have to quote unquote, put yourself out there. You do. I've heard, you know, entrepreneurs say, I, I want Mike Maples on my board because I saw him at this thing, or I read this thing he posted on Medium, or he spoke at Stanford or whatever, whatever, like, you know, or Anne Mirako, his partner, right? Like they are deeply engaged in the world. And, and so I guess anything's possible, but I think today, if you want to be a creator of any kind, you have to have at least 25% skill set on and making my creations known and available in the world because we're in such a noisy world. Yeah. 750,000 fucking podcasts, right? So like you have to say, hey, over here, <laughs> at least every once in a while. Yeah, and, and, and a point, a point um, that, that I think supports that is when I emerged, when, when, when people began to realize I was in the Valley more than the, my ecosystem, was when there was an article in the Mercury yeah. about the virtual CEO role, right? What's interesting is I, there was no social, I couldn't have told that story without right. an intermediary. Right. And I needed to somehow work my way through to get their attention, to get this, what was actually a front page article. So I was shocked. It was a front page, page article, but it was there. And so that, if there was social media at the time, there would have been a thousand tweet, you know, tweeting right. words out there effectively saying what I was saying that the Mercury wouldn't have known where to find me or why to find me. Yeah. The other thing I'd say that's really different is the value of earned media, mm. I think continues to decrease and the value of owned media continues to increase. Um, now, is there some own media that's bullshit and terrible? Absolutely. And is there some earned media that will always, you know, I don't care who you are. If you have something published in the HBR, you laid some shit down because mm -hmm. the HBR is the HBR. The Economist is an extraordinary piece of work. I mean, there are, and there are much smaller ones, you know, Stratechery is mm -hmm. revered, right? And then so there's, and it's like that in the podcast world, right? Um, but I, I, I guess my point is, I think it would be hard to make it work and, and not be out there somewhat. I think that's right. So, so that, so that raises an interesting question. What happens to all the introverts? So we're in a society we're building, what happens to these talented introverts that are out there? What do they, how do they eventually make their mark? And I don't mean from an ego standpoint, I mean, how do they change? The, how do they, how do they impact the world? Uh, I think, Look, there's a way to do this and be an introvert. Um, I think it starts with an understanding that if you're a creator of any kind or a co-creator of any kind, whether it's a company or a painting or a guitar or whatever it is, um, part of making your work work is making it valuable and making it make a difference at some scale. At some scale. The scale might be three people. I don't know, mm -hmm. right? You could have a successful podcast with an audience. I have a buddy 
<laughs> we were talking about him earlier, who lives on the ocean. And he has a video podcast or a YouTube channel with two subscribers. Every morning he wakes up and he videos some shit out his front window and he makes some funny commentary on probably half of them. And he texts it to me and one other guy. And we watch him every fucking day and we love him. And when he doesn't do it, we bug him and he gets back on it. <laughs> that's so funny. Okay, so that's the scale of that yeah, one. <laughs> You know, and then, and then, you know, there's the Joe Rogan podcast, which is, I don't know, 10 or 12 million downloads. In it. I mean, there's never been anything like it. Right. Yeah. I, yes. So, I and then there's JK Rowling and then, there, you know, but how do you but, find your way in that world? If you're <laughs> my issues with self-promotion don't, aren't really the, aren't completely the result of my, um, shyness if you want to call it that because i wouldn't think myself as shy but i do but but i think that you could see me as being publicly shy um it's also i find i find indulging my ego to be a weakness not a strength i don't like doing it i don't like doing it because it makes me feel differently about myself in a way that i'm not yeah so i get this one and and here's the aha um at least this is what's been the aha for me. When the ideas are more important than what you just said, then just go fucking get it done. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, it's like, mm -hmm. I say this to CEOs and founders all the time. And I said, this as a CMO to the CEO. It's like, look, you have to be high profile. The E and CEO stands for evangelist. That's the job. There is no, I sit here and then like, I'm not in the world. That's just not true. You have to be part of the dialogue. You have to be with customers. You have to be with press. You have to be with analysts. You have to be with investors. You have to be, you know, you have to visit our offices and engage with our people. You have to be part of recruiting. You have to be part, you, you, you have to be, you're the fucking leader, right? And so if this is a mission, if this is something that you think is important, you have to be out in the world um, creating a conversation around this these ideas, these products, these, these, whatever it is that you think are important. Well, I love creating, I mean, I love the conversation. That's why I'm here. Right. Right. I love the conversation. What, what I, what I don't feel, what I don't enjoy, what I don't enjoy is the salesmanship, the idea of selling myself. Yeah. Right. That's what I don't enjoy. So I love being out there with, with my ideas. I love provocative conversations. Nothing. Nothing to me is more rewarding than having a really nice, comfortable, long conversation where you've talked about interesting things, right? That's, that to me is like as good as it gets. So, you know, yeah. put some good food around that, I'm done. Right? Yeah. And the thing that I've anchored to on this is getting really clear about the distinction between um, contribution and attention, because I think we've got them confused in a lot of ways, right? And look, I understand there are people who monetize attention. I get that. I got into an argument with somebody about the, yeah. one of these terms I can't stand is influencer. And the fact that, you know, 12-year-olds want to grow up and be Instagram influencers with, for like products and shit. Like, <laughs> I, I think, as I said to this individual, if you don't know why that's terrible, I can't help you. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> 
<laughs> so, but look, I get it. Some people monetize the attention. So, okay, asterisk. That said, I think we've confused contribution for attention. And I think it's, it's easy to confuse that. At the same time, you can see contribution and the personal experience of being part of that is very different than the personal experience of being part of attention. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, I think attention is, I mean, we've commoditized it to a level now, which is disturbing because there's nothing more important for me as a person. Well, maybe, maybe there are other things equally important, but nothing more important than the time I have to think about something, focus on something. I mean, attention, right? Nothing's more valuable because attention is my life. Every second is a moment of attention or inattention. And every moment that I give out to somebody else, I've given my life away. I'm not getting that back, right? Which is part of why the whole social media thing has never been interesting to me. I'd rather mm-hmm. be, I'd rather have five good friends that I can go out and hang out with and have great conversations with like the one we're having now than I would to be entertained mindlessly by dozens of 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 new of new texts coming across my my uh, screen. There's a lot of chatter in the system. <laughs> oh my god! The noise level, noise to signal, which to me is a sort of the measure of life. The, the noise to signal level in the world that we've created online today is deafening. You can't hear a clear tone anywhere, and you've got to tune everything down to get there. Which is, you know, why I meditate every day. There's no other way around it. No other way around it. Yeah. That's why I like to go surfing. Ah, same. Yeah. Or I go to cycling. I mean, I, you know, there is this, there's I, I, my best thinking. I, some of my best ideas happen when I'm get on a bicycle and ride for three hours. Yeah. Right? At the end, I've kind of thought through a problem. I have a different point of view. Certainly I'm never as angry. Yeah. <laughs> you're never as angry after any kind of physical activity. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Especially if you're if you're punching a bag, right? Oh. I, I don't know what there's something wrong with me. <laughs> <laughs> I've seen the bag. <laughs> it's it's good to have a pot. That's that's why martial arts are amazing, right? Like if you have that in you, and look, it's primordial, right? A lot of people have it in them, right? Otherwise, and our our ancestors wouldn't have got here, right? Because you need to be able to defend yourself in the place, right? So somewhere along the line, we all have ancestors who beat some people up, right? Did that your wife, Carrie, also is in martial arts. Oh, yeah. She's terrifying. Yeah. She's terrifying. I think, uh, I think, well, I think everybody should, frankly, but I think particularly for gals. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the statistics are spooky. When I was a kid, like, I don't know, 10, 11, 12, I took, I took karate. And the thing I loved most was, I don't know if they've done it, if in martial arts you practice, they do this, but they were called katas. Yeah. And they were, and they were sort of a slow motion movement. Yeah. Um, I really loved those. Yeah. Because it's not, it's done, it's done with effort. It's done with strength. It's yes. done with intensity. With chi. But, but slow. Yes. The, oh, I love it. Yeah. The body control of that, some, sometimes it's called forms. Uh, the body control of that stuff is uh, extraordinary. Mm. Yeah. It, it, 
it, it makes me at some point want to think about how to get back into just that part of the of the martial arts. I have a guy for you. Really? Yeah. Oh. Yeah, a guy who's like a very ancient soul. Mm. Who'll uh, yeah? If you really want to go there, you got to. It, it, shit gets weird. I'll tell you. <laughs> <laughs> Local here in Santa Cruz. Yeah, right. Oh, here. Of course. I mean, this is Santa Cruz. Yeah, yeah. It's all here. Of course. <laughs> it's all here. Yeah. No, I have it's all here except for you. <laughs> I have the guy. Yeah. <laughs> um, and you'll have a magical, mystical. Uh, yeah. That's good. Yeah. Yeah. Good the truth is. Um, his his point of view, I don't know shit. His point of view is real Tai Chi is actually that. Oh uh, yeah, yeah. It's, it certainly looks similar. Yeah. But, the, but when I see it, mostly done by older Asian people yes. in parks, it's not done with intensity. Yes. It's not done with that strength that you know that, that you see in a good cut. Yeah. No. There's a warrior. Yeah. Thread of Tai and like, oh, I don't know shit about this, so like, I, I should probably shut up. But he he That's does. He's he's like he's the master at that stuff. So you want to get into that? Okay, we'll talk later. I got you, guy. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Randy. Well, anything else you want to touch on? No. Next time we should talk about some of the work I'm doing now, thinking about ethics and entrepreneurship and the whole concept of ethics, because it's you know, in on one hand, it seems so simple, and on the other hand, it's really complicated to even understand what ethics means and how you impact them. So we should talk about that next time. Also, maybe give me a little taste. Well, so, so, so I've been doing some work with Tom Byers at Stanford and um, Mary Gale at Babson. I'm thinking about these issues and, and, and how, to, how to teach and communicate them. Um, and the, what you find is, you know, everybody uses the term ethics as if ethics was a sense of right or wrong. But, but, but the world actually divides along a spectrum of values and, uh, and morals, and then ethics, and then laws. And the divide between morals and ethics is the divide between intrinsic and extrinsic. That ethics is really a community standard. It is not a personal notion of value, which is... Right so ethics is a community standard. It's a community standard. And this is why it's even more disturbing to me what's going on in the Valley today, because um, we're- Give me an example of what an ethic would be so somebody like me could understand. So, so it is, um, let's see, in the military, it is ethical to kill the combatant. In all of the rest of life, it's, it's never moral to, compel, to, to, to kill a combatant. It's never moral. The real question is, do we, do we accept it and excuse it and even maybe celebrate it as an ethos? Or do we disdain it as ethically as a violation of standards? So that's an example, right? I mean, another example to me are lawyers having been one, which is it's never ethical to lie. But lawyers twist the truth in extreme ways that would be seen as unethical in decent society, right? I've heard this phrase and I really like it, how to lie with the truth. Yeah, right. Exactly. exactly. You didn't say anything factually incorrect. Exactly. The conclusions that you were driving somebody to were the wrong conclu conclusions that were unethical to lead them down that path, but you didn't actually. And if you listen very closely, particularly to your point with politicians, you'll hear them not answer the question and it sounds like they might have when they didn't, right? Yep. And they'll, they're leading you on. They didn't lie. And in, in, those, in those contexts, in those, in those communities, the, the ethos is that that's okay. It's high art. 
Lawyers, lawyers will not shy away from the fact that they are good at manipulating the truth. That's their job, right? You know, you, there's no getting around the idea that if you're in the military, your job is to kill somebody. There's no getting around that. It, that's not to say that we would value it as, um, we would deem it reprehensible. By no means it's an ethos of our society that we have certain people on the law protecting us, right? And, and so that's accepted. But that's an ethos, not a moral, right? The, the moral is simple. Thou shalt not kill. That's simple. The question is, in, the, in, the, in context, what's the ethic of that? Right? right. How does it apply? It's certainly, arguably, if somebody came to your house to threaten your wife, um, and the only way to subdue them was to kill them, you wouldn't probably be ha having a lot of, of, of ethical considerations about that, right? You would act on that. Yes. Bring it's it 3 a.m. and you're in my so, house and you're not one of my friends or family. Yeah, you're going to... Shit's going to get real. Exactly. But thou shalt not kill is a moral truth, right? So how do we accept that? And, yeah, and thou shalt not break into my house exactly. is also a moral that, truth. Thou shalt not steal. <laughs> right. so, so what I'm not... So, so I think what's really important to understand is um, that design between the intrinsic and extrinsic. Mm. It's because... Because while I'm in the military shooting somebody, if I am ethically feeling like that's the right thing to do, I still have to deal with the moral consequence of doing something that I know is Well, right. and the other interesting thing is there's ethics inside the ethics, right? And so it is not ethical or moral for a soldier to kill somebody in Unless the circumstance calls for it, right? That's right. So you can't just show up at a town that's right. That's right. and interrogate somebody and if they don't play do something horrible to them to send a message to everybody else there are rules of engagement that i think you're you're alluding to the nuance which is the difference between ethics and laws laws are binary there are things that are so extreme at the at the societal level so clearly black and white that we have decided that we will take a binary position on those things and they are prosecutable or they are litigatable depending upon whether it's criminal or civil law that's a law. Ethics is that grayer area. Yeah. Standards of context, they're, they're changing. You know, did Facebook break a law? Maybe, but that's not the point. The point is that by doing something that I think now a lot of us would question the validity of, um, they were- You mean selling the data? Selling the data. Um, they, they created a circumstance. Yes. It's fundamentally changed the world, right? So, um, and then on the other side, you got values, which are as close to the, to, to the heart as possible. They're your values. And then you have morals. Morals begin to start to creep towards that community side. What are the things we share in common as truths? I may have a truth as a value that's different than the truth that we, have a, that we, we sort of um, uh, talk about as a moral. We need to understand that you can have different values that are not necessarily 100% consistent with your morals, which are the opposite of the ethics, which are, not, which are codified in law, and know where the lines are, because how you navigate this. We keep saying, well, it's, it just needs to be more ethical. I know what we mean by that, but I'm not sure we're precise enough with what we're asking. And let me ask the uh, maybe obvious but and potentially stupid question. 
why do you think it's important that these distinctions get clear and talked about and teased out in the context of entrepreneurship? There is a rush. The pendulum has swung 180 degrees now. We are, there is a rush to condemn the behaviors of Silicon Valley entrepreneurs and these huge unicorns that have been created, the venture capitalists that feed them, et cetera. And by the way, there's a lots of reasons why that's true and why it's deserved. But on the other hand, if ethics are a community standard, then we owe it to ourselves to, under, to, to, to um, engage in, as a group, creating the standards that we believe are relevant to what we do and how we want to live and how we want to judge each other, right? That can only be an explicit, robust conversation if we acknowledge what we're doing and why we're doing it. And if we think about ethics as right or wrong, we need to realize it's right or wrong in the context of a community. Mm. And so obviously partnering with uh, some serious thinkers at universities is an interesting place to, uh, to go to. Uh, What's been getting me thinking. Pop I mean, this I, hood open. The, you know, this whole, what I've just described, took some navigating of reading some old Greek philosophers and also understanding, you know, from my background in the law and trying to piece it all together along the spectrum in ways that mm. made sense. Um, but I do think we've got to deal with the ethical consequences of what we're creating. This is the, this, this is sort of the loss of innocence for me at age 65. Mm. I came to this valley to create value rather than extract value. I felt that technology was not either moral, intrinsically moral or immoral, that it was amoral and that with good intentions, we could make good things of them. I didn't question what we could, could create. I just, um, if, if I found the idea intriguing, if I felt that it was valuable, then that was enough for me to get involved. As I now look at as I, as these unintended but foreseeable consequences that we see in the Valley, there's a difference. And there's a difference from when I was growing up in the naivete that I had then, the romantic naivete that I had then, and um, in today's world. And that is, things are operating at a speed and at a scale that aren't self-correcting. When I was kind of involved in this, we come up with a new idea and that mutation would disappear if it was turned out to be a bad one, right? Um, it, it had time to gestate. There was time to determine whether this was valuable and the social contract was appropriate. Today's markets are global. They're huge in impact. You know, <laughs> Facebook addresses many more people than the than the Congress addresses on an annual basis. Um, and they move at the speed of sound. When you make a mistake, it's very hard to recover. You can't put the genie back in the box. In the old days, we would just sort of peter out. You know? My dad says you can't unring the bell. <laughs> you can't unring that bell. So that's what makes me now more concerned about having a really um, detailed, honest discussion of ethics in our industry and what we want those, that ethos to be. Because, you know, God knows, I look at CRISPR now. I, I'm sure it's well-intended, 
But what could go wrong? Oh, almost everything, right? <laughs> almost everything. And it scares me because the cost of that could be too high. It's like every sci-fi horror movie. Like, you, you what? You did what? And now you want to what? Holy fuck. Exactly. exactly. You want to re-swizzle human beings. Okay. Well, never tested on GMOs over here, eh? What does that even mean? And look, I get the idea. Like the minute I understood that DNA was code and that a disease was a bug, like the minute I understood that, I was like, okay, then you understand the whole thing, right? But then you go, okay, well, to your point on, on unintended consequences, hey, you ever downloaded the new operating system to your iPhone and then like a bunch of shit doesn't work anymore, right? That's why I don't drive a Tesla. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I asked them at Tesla. <laughs> when my wife wanted a new SUV, we went to go see them, right? I don't like them at all. I love what they're doing. I don't want them. But anyways, I asked the guy, I said, okay, so my understanding is when you park this thing at night, it connects to your Wi-Fi, right? Right. And it'll download new shit overnight, right? Right. Can you turn that off? No. Okay. <laughs> I don't want one. Yeah. Wake up and where your brakes don't work. Right? No, like I'm a guy, when I get a new phone, it's two months of pain and suffering. Like it's not, that's not what I want. <laughs> but anyway, to your point, yeah, unintended consequences. Are not unforeseeable consequences. So, it, so that's why I think the ethics are, to me is so important. You know, it's like, you know, it's one thing to give people pellet guns. It's another one to give them atomic weapons. And I think that's, we're operating at atomic weapons scale now and speed now. And a mistake can be devastating. Whether it means that the world has changed because we've brought in an um, incompetent leader to the Western world, or whether that means that we've introduced a virus that didn't exist before and is going to spread faster than we can come up with a solution. These are the risks that I don't think we can afford to take. And the spooky thing is uh, when you watch Congress interview Zuckerberg, you're like, you mean the dudes who have their admins print their emails out on paper? Those dudes are asking the questions. <laughs> like, yeah, what the fuck's going on? We, we do not have the government we need. We may have the government we deserve. Yeah, I just wish we were a little more forward-leaning at a senior level on technology, but that's a whole other conversation. Yeah. yeah. All right, Randy, anything else? I think, no, you've exhausted me for the day. <laughs> <laughs> it's a pleasure being here, by the way. I really, really enjoy your studio. It's lovely, and your house is fantastic. Thank you, Randy. This has been great, and I hope you come back. I will. Yeah. Thank you, brother. Well, folks, there he is, the legend himself. Uh, now you know Randy Comazar, and uh, I sure hope you enjoyed that conversation as much as I did. And, you know, the real, the real uh, sort of privilege for me, pleasure for me, is um, I get to have the conversation, and then I get to relive it when it comes out and experience it as a listener. And as corny as this sounds, I listen to this podcast like a listener. It's I know this makes me sound like a dork, but it's my favorite podcast, and I always get a ton out of having the conversations and then a ton more out of listening to them. So anyway, I hope you love that one like I did. Now, the folks at DocuSign, who are now a publicly traded software company, they wanted to modernize their IT platform and streamline their business. And that's why they turned to my friends at NetSuite. 
And in particular, revenue recognition had become a bottleneck at DocuSign. And I'll tell you, as a public company, one of the things you need to get right is revenue recognition. They had a spreadsheet-reliant process that had grown unmanageable as uh, DocuSign approached 100,000 global customers. And they needed an IT platform that could integrate with numerous cloud systems. DocuSign wanted a platform that would streamline the way they do business and allow them to scale into the future for budgeting, for forecasting, for billing, uh, time and expense management, etc. That's why they turned to NetSuite, because NetSuite is the platform for knowing your business and growing your business. How do you like that? Um, as a matter of fact, they're the number one cloud ERP system. And uh, NetSuite is a lot more cost effective than you might expect. So uh, go to netsuite.com slash different, and there you'll be able to set up a free one-hour growth review with an expert in your industry. That's netsuite.com slash different. All right, we would like to thank the amazing Randy Komazar. And uh, in case you missed it, he and uh, his buddy and my buddy, Paul Martino, launched a podcast not long ago called the No Bull Podcast, featuring the teachings of Silicon Valley legend, the legendary coach himself, Bill Campbell. Check out the No Bull podcast wherever you get legendary podcasts. Uh, OneLifeFullyLived.org. This is the nonprofit helping you dream, plan, and live your best life. Check them out. If you work in tech, if you like tech, and you get a little bit of a grump on, check out one of my favorite podcasts with my buddies, Jason DeFilippo and Brian Schulmeister, Grumpy Old Geeks. That's the Grumpy Old Geeks podcast. GrowWire.com. It's what legendary growth-oriented entrepreneurs are reading. Check it out. GrowWire.com. And um, play bigger. My first book. Hey, why don't you check that out while you're at it? (laughs) How pirates, dreamers, and innovators uh, create and dominate markets. And are you looking to scale your business? Then why not check out my friends at Bottleneck Virtual Assistance at bottleneck.online. Now, I need to remind you that this podcast is a sole property of the Lockhead Oddcast Network. And uh, clearly, it was created in a studio that does contain nuts. This podcast is produced by the nicest man in podcasting, Jamie J, edited by the incredible Sarah Parrish and Mike D, and show notes by Diane Gervasio. Don't forget to support your local entrepreneurs. Share Bill Campbell and the No Bull podcast. Listen to Lady Gaga. Thank you, Candy Dandy. I love you, Mom and Dad. And hey, Colin, this oddcast really ties the room together, doesn't it? Today, our deepest apologies go out to Craig Landau, CEO of Purdue Pharma. Sorry, Craig, we just ran out of time for you. That's it, my friends. Thank you for investing part of your life with me. And until we're together again, follow your difference.